back to the Silmarillion Film Project. After my uh, brief vanishing act the last time, <laughs> I am your co-host Dave Kale, uh, rematerialized <clears throat> to bring you part two of, uh, of Celeborn and Galadriel. <laughs> That's right. That's the plan. We're just going to keep talking about Celeborn and Galadriel for at least another week, maybe two. Yeah, who knows? All Celeborn and Galadriel all the time on this podcast because that's what the people want, and we got to give that's them right. what they want. That's right. We can't get enough unfriendship. That's just the thing, you know. Like we, we've got to, we've got to go back there. Yeah, that's right. So, as you can hear, I am joined as always by the Tolkien professor Corey Olson. Uh, sadly, uh, Trish and I seem to be trading places because I wasn't here last time, and she is not here tonight. Um, but uh, we'll we'll uh, soldier on. I think I think she, as exciting as tonight goes, I think she got the better part because, of course, she got Caliborn and Galadriel. She got Caliborn and Galadriel, Everybody. exactly. <laughs> Everybody loves Caliborn and Galadriel. We do have we do have exciting things tonight, like Gil Gallet. Like Gil Gallet, exactly. Trying to figure out. Uh, there's a whole bunch of uh, really fun. Uh, um, I was going to say loose ends. That's not quite fair. Um, but little like plot bits that are sort of floating around, either minor characters or um, small thing, but, but uh, you know, some really interesting questions to try to solve. So uh, I'm, uh, I'm excited about that. We may possibly get as far as contemplating the uh, villains and what's going on with them. I'm not personally ambitious about getting that far. We'll see. Uh, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it'll happen. But uh, uh, but we'll see. Um, there's a lot a, to incorporate. a little lower. I think yeah. villains is a moonshot. <laughs> villains is kind of a moonshot tonight. But maybe we'll get through our stray elf plot lines. Uh, uh, elf, well, elves and a certain hound uh, who is true of heart. So we'll, we'll see if we can get to him as well here this evening. So, um, but before we jump into things, a uh, couple quick announcements. Uh, first, primarily, Middle Moot is coming up. Our second online moot uh, is going to be August 10th, virtually hosted from Kansas City. Uh, and uh, it is going to be, in fact, hosted by the Kansas City Tolkien Society. Um, and uh, the theme is the Heart of Hope. Uh, I really encourage people, there's still time uh, to sign up uh, to propose uh, a paper or some other session. Um, so I definitely... Um, recommend that uh, if uh, uh, if you can attend there. It's Saturday, August 10th. Um, it is going to be a totally online uh, conference. We had such a wonderful online uh, myth moot. I'm really looking forward uh, to our online middle moot, uh, our, the first of our online regional events. Uh, so um, uh, we will see. So October 10th, 2020. Uh, is when that's going to be. Uh, also, just another note that our Signum store uh, is open. Uh, lots of fun stuff there. Uh, I was just wearing my Balrogs Don't Have Wings shirt earlier today, so there we go. Oh, did I say August? Yeah, no, not August 10th. October 10th, 
Yeah, it's no longer August. August August was a long month for me. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm stuck mentally in August. All right, but let us... Whoa, hang on there, Tiger. Talk about ambition. Okay, uh, let us get back to some of our stray elf plot lines. Um, and I want to think, think about Thingol and Círdan here. So, Thingol. What's Thingol's deal? Um, and again, here, I'm trying to resist uh, this sort of oversimplification just to have Thingol be just like a universal jerk from day one, right? Um, it needs to be his reaction uh, to Baron, and what he does to Baron has to feel shocking. If it doesn't feel shocking, um, then it's going to lose a whole lot of its power. Um, it should feel sh- it should feel stunning to the audience. It's going to shock Luthien, uh, and she's going to feel betrayed by that, especially then after her father locks her up uh, following that. So it's going to go from bad to worse pretty quickly with Thingol there. Um, uh, but but again, we need to we need to have that. Um, that moment, which is coming soon, right? It's coming next season, so it's not distant future. But we need to come that not that needs to not come completely out of left field. Um, but it needs to be a real break. It needs to be something that is jarring, I think, uh, in order for it to have the kind of impact that it's going to have. And we've seen Thingol be stern and get upset. He was upset last season, right? With the whole when the whole, whole Kinslaying thing broke. Um, but uh, but why? So the other factor here, of course, is that we have to keep in mind that we're deliberately setting this up, right? You know, I, that is, we're setting up Baron and Luthien uh, here in doing this. We cannot have the, everything that relates to Thingol and humans here in season five has got to map directly, has got to be directly anticipating what's going to be happening in season six. Um, uh, so, um, uh, anyway, yeah, I, um, I'm not sure. So in the text, we're told that Thingol is troubled by dreams concerning men. Um, and on the one hand, okay, I mean, that's an explanation. Um, it gives us an angle for Thingol to be doing this, not just out of personal prejudice, right? Not just that he's like, ooh, men, no, not here. No, thank you. Um, he doesn't have to come off like that. He can do this, you know, more in sorrow than in anger. You know, he can have a, you know, sort of a, you know, some kind of foreboding. We have to be a little cautious because we're already introducing the whole I have a dream angle with Fingolfin uh, with our new, um, you know, sort of the prophecy of Fingolfin angle that we're bringing in, uh, uh, working up towards his death at the end. Uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Stephen H says, we don't need well-wishers or distant relations. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so yeah, anyhow, we, we've got to, um, we've got to be a little care. I don't want to just overplay the whole, I'm having prophetic dreams thing. Um, what's more, for our kind of narrative, um, we would at the least need to be a good deal more explicit about those dreams. What exactly? What kind of dreams trouble him? Um, is it some kind of foreboding of what exactly? Um, 
Uh, and why is it? Uh, and because Michael, I agree with you. Michael Dennis says troubled by leaves a lot of room for interpretation. Um, were the dreams ominous or troubling because they were too persistent? Or yeah, exactly. Like, what did he dream? Why was he troubled? Um, was the trouble personal? You know, I, that is to say, is he banning men because basically, like, his troubling dreams, like, told him to do that? Like, that was a, a sort of a clear signal from his dreams in some sense? Or was he troubled by his dreams and in his own, you know, emotional reaction to his dreams decided, well, we should just ban men because, you know, um, uh, you know, I don't really, I don't really know. Um, so we've got to, and again, we've got to be thinking about Baron and Luthien here, right? I mean, I can't see like, what, f- assuming, assuming that Book Thingle has legitimate forebodings, right? Um, of the future, that there's, you know, that he's troubled. What is it? I mean, if he's being sent a message, if somebody is sending him a message through dreams, right? Um, what? What is, what? what is the message that's being sent to him? Men are going to be only tangentially, tangentially related to the downfall of Doriath. Um, they were more related in earlier drafts. Um, that is when Hurin, when Hurin comes to Doriath with the, um, uh, with the, sorry, Nauglamir. I almost forgot the, I, I almost said the Nauglafring, which is of course the earlier version of it. But actually that's why I was thinking that, because I am thinking of the earlier version of it. When Hurin comes with the Nauglafring uh, to Doriath, he comes with a band of dudes, at first, and they're fairly unsavory dudes. They're like the outlaws, uh, pretty much. Um, so there's like, you know, and they end up fighting. I mean, the elves end up killing them and stuff. It's uh, It doesn't go down well. Um, now, Tolkien, you know, that's not there in the published Silmarillion. So we've sort of moved away from that, and it's just the downfall of, Do- of Doriath becomes almost entirely, with the exception of Hurin's own intervention, um, a man, dwar- or an elf dwarf issue, right? Um, so, in the later context, right, which I'm, I don't think we want to uh, go back to the old version, the old Nauglifring story, um, but um, uh, yeah. Um, now, Rhiannon, I, I hear that. Rhiannon says that Thingol already doesn't even let any of the Noldor, you know, except for Finarfin's children into Doriath. So not letting men in isn't a, isn't a huge stretch. It's not exactly out of character. And I agree with that. And if, if it were just policy, right? If he were just... If, if Thingol's message were, no, I'm not making an exception even for men. Okay, I mean, and we could do it that way, perhaps. You know, maybe maybe we do it that way. Um, but I, 
I don't know. I mean, I, again, I, I, I certainly agree. It's far from out of character for Thingol to like ban folks, but the Noldor thing was personal. Like that was personal to the Noldor, right? He doesn't exactly. They don't exactly have the same kind of policy. I mean, there's you know they've got defenses, but it's not exactly a Gondolin situation where nobody is allowed in. Um, the Noldor have been dis, you know, like the Feanorians are are uninvited, right, uh, to Doriath. But that doesn't mean that it's a given that any other, you know, friend or ally could never come in. Um, so, so although I agree, I mean, again, it's not like it's a it's a radical, shocking, sort of appalling uh, uh, policy. But Nick, exactly, he does let dwarves in. Yes, exactly. Um, so. It does not seem even I mean, his his thing about the Noldor was personal to them. Um, it does not seem that Thingol's policy has been exclude by default, even anybody by default. I mean, OK, orcs. Right. I know. But uh, of, of, of the allies, uh, he doesn't seem to be by default uh, banning anybody until he's now pointedly excluded um, the, you know, the Fanorians and the other of the non-Finarfinian uh, Noldor. Um, so, again, I have to think, um, I have to think that, um, yeah, exactly, Nick. Uh, Nick says uh, he's, he's blacklisting the Noldor. Uh, you know, he, he's not, like, just choosing to whitelist some folks, <laughs> right? No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. Um, uh, so... It's got to be Luthien-oriented, right? But but I want to go back to the dream thing. Do we want to do the dream thing? My impulse is to ditch the dream. Um, because if we don't ditch the dream, in the context of our story... Tolkien in the narrative can just say that, right? And he can just say he was troubled by dreams. He says that in like one part of one sentence, right? And lets it go. But within the context of our narrative, we've got to explain that. What is the dream? Who sent the dream, right? I mean, the Valar are still characters in our story. So, like... You know, and we're working on like the plot line of what they're going on and what they're doing and what they're thinking. Whereas the narrative of the published Silmarillion has very firmly moved away from Valinor at this at this time, right? You know, that's a a, a choice that we've made, which I still like, and I, I I would make that choice again. But there are consequences to that choice, and one of them is we can't just have a dream and not explain it in that sense. Um. Uh. So. Uh. And again, like I said, we're 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 already playing that card at least one extra time in this season. So it's another reason that makes me hesitant. Um, besides, so so why would he do it? If he doesn't have a message, he could just have a foreboding, right? Um, I mean, he could just. Uh, uh, He could just wouldn't that just wouldn't foreboding just be like the weak sauce version of a dream? <laughs> well, it's sort of. I mean, it could come off that way, certainly. But of course, we do have to. I mean, this is something we're going to have to deal with, in the sense that there are lots of characters who just have, you know, foresight, 
of the future. Not all the time, but like these bursts of foresight, uh, which give them insight into what's going to happen in the future. Um, and we don't we don't want to turn every one of those into a dream, into a direct message. That, that yes, we don't. We, every single time someone. Uh, has a foretelling, like in the Lord of the Rings. We don't need to translate that into like they're getting a text from a particular Valar at you know a, a particular Valar at that time. Um, I think it's it's okay for that just to be an element there. Um, have we have we if we, we uh, confess my memory of everything that we've done in the last six years is not encyclopedic. <laughs> Have we dealt with something like this before? Is this something we've established as a thing? Uh, dreams, would you mean? Be the first time we would. Well, I mean, of course. No, we... not dreams, but yeah. the foreboding. The foreboding. Because I think what makes this interesting is um, is that in this case, like, I guess what I'd want to avoid is having a throwaway line, right? That um, that where where you know the viewers are just like okay. It has a bad feeling about people. And, you know, for the informed viewer who's like, well, of course, that makes sense. Right. Uh, and then for the average viewer, they're like, oh, okay, that seems unfair and unjustified. And then, uh, you know, some number of seasons later, Baron and Luthien happens. That's That would be the payoff, but people just don't, they don't connect it. Um, whereas if we did a dream in which we in which we hinted at Baron and Luthien, which is one of our important stories, then, then people would be waiting for it, right? Right, right. Um, see, here's the other thing. Melian. Melian used to hang out in Lorien, right? I mean, she was associated with Irmo, the Vala. Um, that is to say, like the dream dude, you know, like the like that's um, so. You've got to think that um, uh, you've got to think that she would have both that she would have some insight into this kind of thing, and that he would, you know, go to her about this. I'm imagining whether we. I think maybe we maybe we kind of have it both ways. Maybe he does have a dream, but the dream is not it's not a message or a warning exactly. Um or it's unclear if it is that it's instead it's sort of like the manifestation of his own premonition, right? He he has a premonition of what's coming. Um the 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 forebo- whatever foreboding he has it has to be attached to Luthien I mean I can't see any other way to do that um, uh, completely agree I also I also think like this is since it's since that's one of our central stories like I feel like pointing at it um, yes uh, is a really good idea yeah I mean of course we can even if we play this right we can even increase the tension and the power of the Baron and Luthien moment, the beginning moment, right? The dancing in the woods moment. Um, if we set up that some, the, basically he is, he is afraid that, um, 
the kind of conviction that he wakes up uh, with is that um, Luthien is going to meet a man uh, and and uh, it's going to kill her, right? I mean, like, her, her death is what he foresees, right? Um, her death is what he foresees and he knows that it's going to, it's, you know, and, and, and like, you know, like the, the two things, right? Her meeting one of these new species, right? One of these men, uh, and and then she's going to die, and he's going to lose her, right? Um, that's uh, that, of course, then can lead to a sort of adding to the tension a little bit because let's not, I mean, we can't go too far into. Th- I don't want to indulge too much in uh, preparing for season six because that's not this season yet. Um, but you know, the whole Baron and Luthien meeting scene. Has, there's got to be some tension there, right? That, that could be going in one of several different directions, right? And it should be not really clear uh, until it plays out. I think that the moment um, when she turns and puts her hand in his should be pretty much a surprise to everybody involved. Should be a surprise to Luthien, should be a surprise to Baron, should be a surprise to the audience. Um, uh, so... Um, Yeah. Um, right, Marie says, so we're going fairy tale with this. Burn all the spindles. Something like that? Yeah, I mean, yeah. That, I, I, I have no problem with d- going a little bit fairy tale in that way, Marie. And that kind of, um, that kind of dream and that kind of conclusion drawn from a dream uh, and sort of overreaction has some good authority behind it, right? In this way. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. And Stephen, I've never had any idea how anybody in that kingdom made clothes for the next 16 years. I've, I've never gotten that. They must have imported. I, I, I don't, I've, I've never, I have to admit, I've never understood that. Um, which, um, yeah. I also just kind of tells you something about what kind of narrative you're reading at that time, at that point, right? Um, so, Nick, that's a really interesting idea. Nick says, what if the dream is of a man coming and giving him something? Because this will happen twice, right? This will happen when Baron comes to give him the Silmarok. So it doesn't actually give him anything that time, Nick, right? Um, uh, well, he does at the end, right? On, when, in, in, when Baron's dying, I suppose. But um, Baron giving him a Silmaril and Hurin giving him the Nauglamir, right? So twice that will be fulfilled, that two men will come uh, to Doriath and will we'll give him something. And that both of those times, you know, uh, it will lead ultimately to the first leads to his loss of, loss of Luthi and the second leads to his own death, ultimately. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I, I. That's interesting. But I don't know. 
my initial response was to be resistant to dreams just because just for fear that we're overplaying it. We did we've done a bunch of dreams. We're doing dreams elsewhere this season. I'm just worried that we're overplaying the dream thing and it's going to get stale. Right. Um I'm trying to kind of work through it and talk myself into it and there's 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 a lot to kind of like about it. Um but I'm I'm still a little nervous about that. Still a little nervous about overplaying the dreaming thing, but I'm not sure that I see how to replace it. Um, in my mind, I'm imagining a scene, a nighttime scene, where it's the middle of the night and Thingol, you know, in his royal pajamas, is sitting up and not sleeping, right? He's like, sitting by the window or standing by the window looking out or something like that. Um, and Melian comes over and is like, you know, hey, honey, what's up? Like, why can't you sleep? And he's like, my heart is troubled and explains. And maybe we just leave it vague as to whether or not he had a dream or not. But um, just like that, his heart is tr- you know, he's heard the news of men, of the coming of men. And he can just say something like, upon hearing you know, when I heard of the coming of men into these lands, a shadow fell on my heart and uh, that I can't understand and can't explain. And so they talk about it. Uh, and, um, you know, and she kind of helps him think it through a little bit. Um, uh, and his ultimate conclusion from this is, I think we just, we, we can't, we have to ban men. Like we, 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 we can't have men come to Doriath because, and then we, cause we can give him some nice, like dramatically ironic lines, right? Uh, things like for, I, for, I fear that, you know, the day that a man comes to Doriath, um, you know, uh, you know, doom shall fall on this kingdom or something like that. And then, you know, Melian can reply and say something nice, like, you know, doom indeed, you know, may come. But anyway, so maybe we get just kind of downplay that doing it that way, just like the, the whole, like a shadow fell in my heart. Then it, it uses the, I've got a premonition angle without making it a big deal prophecy thing. Exactly. But again, this is the kind of thing that happens in Tolkien quite a bit. This whole, this, a shadow fell on my heart. Then I'm quoting Gandalf here, uh, in, in his reflection back on the ring. Um, but, um, um, yeah, Michael, that's a great impulse. Michael Dennis says, is there a way we can have him taking her advice now so that when he rejects her advice with Baron, uh, it increases the shock, uh, when he does. Um, that's interesting. That's interesting. Rihanna, and I do agree that there will be some political reasons for him not to want men in Doriath. I mean, we were talking about the incident, the unfriendship incident, uh, yesterday, uh, yesterday, you know, in the world of film film yesterday, last time. Um, and you know, I've no reason to think that Caliborn isn't going to report back to Thingol and send him a message and say, Hey, you know, uh, we had this little kind of disturbing experience with these men coming in you know, and tell them the story of like the hanged body and, and like, is the, you know, are these like routine kinslayers that we're bringing in here? Like there's, you know, um, 
basically, you know, Kelborn can just kind of send up some red flags, uh, and uh, Thingol could be, you know, so he first has his whole, like, shadow on his heart thing, right? And then he hears this news and is like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, um, yeah, Marie points out this could be, in this sense, this could be, like, the last time he listens to Melian. <laughs> Which seems sad. Um, uh, but, yeah, I mean, so, again, I, I, I think it would be good uh, to have her... But, but what what advice is she going to give that he's going to heed? Surely, let's forbid men from entering Doriath. Can't be her idea, right? I mean, in the text, she goes to Galadriel and is like, "Yeah, well, uh, men's going to come anyway, right?" And, you know, she has the premonition that Baron is going to come. Um, so. Yeah, no, Nick, I think she's... Well, I don't know. I wouldn't say she's expecting Baron. The Baron situation, the full Baron situation, is going to catch her by surprise. Um, but she does, in the text, have an explicit foreboding of the coming... That a man will come through and that her girdle will not be able to hold him back. Um, you know, that that happens. That happens. So, um yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's what Marie was just reminding of, too. Um, hmm. So, yeah, I... What would be the point, from her perspective, of banning men? Okay, well, first of all, one thing, it doesn't have to be a ban in the same sense. He doesn't have to blacklist men in the same way that he blacklists the Noldor. Not in the same sense, right? I mean, it's not exactly like it's an issue. They're not, it's, it's not like he's got a long string of humans knocking on his door, right? Um, the question is just, are men welcome? Is he going to reach out to the men? And he decides not to. Um, and if they did try to enter, he would say no. And of course, this is going to come into effect with Haleth when um, he's going to finally let her and her people stay in Brethel, but he's going to first try to exclude her there. So he's going to not want them because he's going to be looking nervously in that direction, right? I would think that the arrival on his borders of the Haladin would look to him like the fulfillment, right? Oh man, that's it. That's where it's that's where it's coming from, obviously, right? I had this foreboding that you know men would come or men would try to come, and that the great suffering would come as a consequence of it. And now here they are, right? So we need to so we need to resist that. Um, and, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so, Marie, exactly. She sees, when Thingol says, no men allowed, I won't say Melian rolls her eyes, but there's like a little bit of eye rolling there, right? Privately. 
not publicly, but privately, as she's like, well, no, no good that's going to do, right? He just banned men, but a man is coming. So, again, I have a hard time imagining her being the origin of a ban like that. Um, so... Yeah, exactly, Stephen. More, more of a private facepalm uh, than a, you know any kind of open resistance. Certainly. Um, yeah. Um, gosh, this is hard. This is this is actually harder than I expected. That's an interesting suggestion. Um, sorry, who was that? Uh, yeah, Stephen Cover was saying she could say something like, "If men come, they will bring, you know, uh, uh, then like great sorrow and great joy uh, will come to you know to us here in Doriath." Uh, and his response is like, "Great sorrow, enough said. Uh, you know, not welcome." Um, so he's listening to her, right? He's responding to what she says, but his but he's not necessarily kind of getting the picture, nor is he getting the fact that his there's, there's nothing he can do. I mean, the main thing about the ban against men is that it's ineffectual. The only way it's not ineffectual, I mean, it does keep, uh, as you say, Marie, um, there are several migrating groups of men who might quite like to pass safely through Doriath instead of going around uh, the Haladin being one, and of course the the people of Beor as they're coming up from the south for two. Um, uh, we could even have men... Ooh, I just had an idea. What about Hador? What if Hador first tries to go to Doriath and is refused at the borders, and that's why he ends up going up north instead? Um... That would be kind of interesting, wouldn't it? I, I'm, again, I'm just thinking about the the implementation of you know the ban against men. Um, it would be just it would, it would just be kind of an interesting like what if scenario, right? Um, what if Thingol had let Hador in in the first place? Uh, might things have been different in some way? Um, I don't know. That's a small idea. Uh, Maybe we don't have time for that anyhow. But, um... I think... The more I think about it, the more I think that the interaction between Thingol and Melian has to be... not him complying with her, you know, him going along with her, thereby setting up increased shock for later on when he doesn't. But rather it would, should be foreboding, uh, okay, a foreshadowing of the ways in which Thingol is going to go wrong later. Not that this decision is him going wrong, necessarily, but um, I think that One of the things that Thingol is going to do, one or rather one way to characterize what Thingol does to get himself in trouble twice, 
with Baron and then again with the Silmaril, is essentially try to take fate into his own hands. Right? Try to basically say, I'm bigger, I'm bigger than Doom. Right? Um, you know, he tries to prevent, he has a, he has a, you know, he has a dream, has a foreboding that men are going to bring suffering to Doriath. So he's like, I'm going to resist that. By the force of my will and the power of my decree, I'm going to stop that happening by banning all men. And Melian's response is, honey, that ain't going to work. It's not going to work. Um, and then later, right, when Baron and Luthien are there, Melian can see what direction things are going, right? And yet he's going to be like, I'm going to devise cunning counsel that is going to make things turn out the way that I want to turn out, like, despite despite uh, Luthien, especially, right? Um, I'm going to keep my word to her, and yet I'm going to make happen what I want to happen. And then, with the Silmaril, right? I mean, he why does he keep the Silmaril? Why should he keep the Silmaril, right? Again, you know, he's like, I know the Feanorians, you know, want this, and this is causing all kinds of trouble and everything, but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep it, right? Um, and I'm gonna like aggrandize myself because of it, even though, again, that's clearly not a good idea. So there's gonna be, he's guilty of some rashness. He's guilty of some um, um, grandiosity of thought, right? Um, and uh, Stephen says, "Is that where is that where uh, Turin gets it from?" Uh, yeah, well, you know, he is fostered by uh, by Thingol. Yeah, I, I'm just imagining Stephen, a charming new scene, right, where like young Turin, right, like eight year old Turin or whatever, ten year old Turin, uh, sort of sitting there with Thingol, and Thingol's like, "Well, young Turin, right, the most important thing is." always insist on your own will, no matter what fate says, because by golly, you can turn things to your own. Yeah, you know, that's uh, that's it. Um, probably learn that right from there. Um, so, hmm. Cecilia, you're right. Remind me to come back to that, Cecilia. Cecilia has a question about the girdle itself, which is worthwhile for us to think about. Let's, but let's keep finishing the Thingol issue first. So I've got to think we need to have, instead of the sort of reverse setup, right, to make the, the, his later action more surprising, instead of having him go along with Melian here, I think maybe we need to have, you know, the thin edge of the wedge here. You know, I think we need to have the, um, the first sort of slip. Um, and to show the direction in which things are going to slip with Thingol. This is not, again, this is not a catastrophic action on his part, but it is a typical action in this sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and yes, Nick, in part, that is the very lesson of Sleeping Beauty. I got, I'm fine with that parallel. That's, that's, uh, yes, absolutely. Um, uh, Yeah. <laughs> Nick is imagining Thingol finishing his version of the story of Baron and Luthien. And this and that is how I became the master of fate in Doriath. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So 
I, I, I think I think that that's how we have to play it. So if he has, you know, we have this. I don't know whether you know uh, you guys would want to do it in terms of the kind of you know nocturnal scene I was describing, right? Um, with him troubled in the night, and you know Melian trying, you know, asking after what's troubling him and uh, seeking to counsel him, um, because I think that she would say she would tell him some version of what she says in the text to Galadriel, right? Um, she would say, you know, if it be you know that men are going to bring trouble uh, to Doriath, I don't think that we can stand against that and Thingol can be like watch me <laughs> right and again it's not he's not going to be like you know pipe down woman but he is uh, but there's going to be some stubbornness there I think there there has to be some stubbornness there um, yeah yeah exactly Marie Thingol's flaws wa- wanting to get his own way without heeding warnings yeah yeah you know that that He's he is not afraid to try to make things work out the way that he wants them to work out, even if he has reason to believe, like you know his wife suggesting to him um, that that's not in fact the direction the wind is blowing. Right? That uh, that providence has other plans here, um, but he's okay trying to sort of stand against that. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Oh no, Stephen H. I totally agree with you. Um, uh, between Morwen and Thingol, he's Turin's going to have plenty of role models who are going to be insistent upon uh, pursuing their own wills, even uh, in the face of um, externals and the circumstances which uh, fate is dealing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I like Morwen. But she is not a good role model. Um, uh, she's not a good role model. Morwen is going to be complicated when we get to her. She's a very strong female character, but um, uh, but but there's there 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 are problems. Definitely problems there. Okay, so some kind of nocturnal foreboding which may or may not have involved a dream uh, but again, it, but it's not a dream it's not a, like a direct message from the Valar or anything um, this is just his own, a shadow falling on his heart as I say, and then later on he can be warned so like the entire Thingol arc for this season, right, would be something like it begins with his foreboding, right, the shadow falling on his heart, and then and he's like, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I'm going to exclude men. We're going to, I'm going to try to resist, you know, this, um, this, you know, if we take action, if we act decisively, we can prevent uh, this, uh, you know, are we not free, uh, you know, uh, in Middle Earth? Sure, okay, um, and then he's going to hear from Caliborn about the apparent like kin-slaying incident, that's going to be troubling further, and he's going to be like, see, these men are no good. Um, maybe he doesn't even make any decree first. Maybe he only makes the decree after he gets the news, right? So first he's just kind of troubled. But it's not, it's it's theoretical, right? I mean, they're far away and still and, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not really an issue. Um, and then um, uh, and then he wants uh, and then he hears this news and he's like, okay, yeah, no, like 
uh, slayers of their own kin not welcome here. This gives me like an excuse as well as uh, like this gives me a reason as well as uh, just a, a like a feeling, right? So um, so yeah, no no no, we're not we're not having any of that. Which then, you know, when Holith comes in and is like, "Hi, can I just mind if I pass through?" and and they're gonna say, "No, no, you can't pass through," right? And then we're gonna get Holith again on the other side. Um, where he's like, dude, I thought I told you. And she's like, are you are you kidding me? Even over here? Like, come on. Um, and then, of course, we're going to have him relenting primarily on Beleg's uh, request. We had talked about the admiration that we wanted to have Beleg um, have for uh, Haleth. I think Beleg is the clear candidate to be sort of most pro-human from the beginning. Um, uh I think it would be interesting for so Beleg is he is willing to help. He wants to help um, the Haladin, um, and he likes Haleth, right? He admires Haleth. I, I would think maybe from the beginning, um, but on Thingol's orders, he turns them away at the Beleg, turns them away at the border, uh, and then. Eventually, they come back around, and, and he's, like, getting reports, right? Beleg is getting reports from folks who are watching the progress of the Haladin, um, and he's amazed at what he hears, right? And then they come back down, and then there's the whole Tevildo thing, um, and then he prevails upon Thingol then. Um, uh, yeah, um... Right, Marie said Moblong was the friend of dwarves. Uh, he was uh, he was Norn's buddy. Uh, Celeborn befriends the Noldor, so now it's Beleg's turn uh, to adopt a, to adopt a foreign race to try to convince Thingol that it's a good idea. Um, yeah, yeah. So Beleg can be you know he's so he is increasingly pro Haladin right until at the end she kills Tevildo and he's like, look, this is. You know, look, King, like, they're not even trying to get in. They just want to live in the suburbs, right? And seriously, we can, um, you know, this this would be this would be only to the benefit uh, of Doriath uh, if we have them out there. Um, now, on to the, on to Cecilia, back to your question. Did we decide what the Girdle of Melian is going to do? We haven't had much interaction with the Girdle of Melian ever since it was instituted and booted out Shelob and the spiders, right? We saw it, you know, blast the spiders out of um, um, out of Doriath before, but we haven't had much action on the boundaries, right? That is, the, the magic of the Girdle actually invoked yet, right? Did we decide how we're going to depict that? Cecilia was asking, like, what happens if the Haladin try to rush it, you know, um, uh, try to sneak in, in other words, try to cut the corner, right? Uh, Surely they'd kind of want to do that, right? Um, uh, How does it work? Tolkien is a little bit indefinite about this. I don't get the impression that it's a wall. Exactly. Um, interesting. Nick says we did kind of show it in the episode where Thingol appears from Nan Elmoth, though at smaller scale. 
evil creatures who attempt to cross the girdle are terrified, right? Fear comes upon them. Um, they lose their way, right? Um, yeah, I agree, Michael. I do not see it as like a, 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 a Hogwarts-type shield, right? Um, yes. I don't think it's just a boundary that things will bounce off of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're afraid and they turn around and get lost. Um, the experience that I would imagine... So, uh, imagining one of the Haladin, right, who's trying to, like, make a foray into the woods... As again, they're going to want to, right? I mean, as they're passing through Nend on Kortheb, there have to be people who are like, okay, so we can't go into that kingdom down there, right? But surely, it's this is awful up here. Maybe we could go just a little bit and like go through the edges of the trees, right? So like, you've got to think they're going to be probing the edges of the girdle and, and going along as close to that as possible, right? I mean, like, or at least that's going to be a suggestion. Um, so, yeah, maze is the other word, Marie, uh, that I'm recalling there, too. Um, uh, so what's the experience, again? What's the experience of, like, a human hunter, say, who attempts to cut the corner, or who just tries to scout and see how far south he can get into the forest, um, he is going to end up... But I don't think it's just going to be... I don't think it should be just like um, the experience that Alice has in Looking Glass World, right? When she leaves Looking Glass House and tries to run over towards the garden, and every time she runs, she ends up back at the house again and not realizing and not feeling herself turn around. I don't think it would be quite like that, right? Where they're like, I'm walking straight into the forest and now I suddenly find myself coming out of the forest. How did that happen? I don't remember turning around. Um, it could work like that, um, I suppose. But that seems a little gentle. The girdle does not seem particularly gentle, really. Um, again, it's a terrifying experience for those who try to and go and fail. Like it's not just a simple fail, right? Um, uh, yeah, Stephen, more like, I really don't think I want to go that way. I'd better go a different way. Um, yes, it's setting their wills against millions. Exactly. It is, it is, it is her own power. It is her own will, um, uh, that keeps people out. So for someone to get in, they have to, their own will to enter has to be greater than her will to keep them out. Um, so it is, it is in that way, not necessarily, it's, it's, it's a little bit more, um, passive than that. Uh, but, but it is grounded in her will, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, Marie says, because Tolkien definitely wants Disney Snow White references in, in this adaptation. Yeah, so we should, um, 
Uh, right, more like Snow White running through the trees that grab at her. Yeah, exactly. Or like the uh, um, uh, the enormous wall of thorns that grows up around the castle at the end, you know, that, like, the prince has to hack his way through in the Disney movie. Um, yes, that's another example of how the Girdle of Million should not be, I think. Um, yeah. Um... I don't think there should be a physical barrier, either visibly or invisibly. So certainly not like a force field that they bounce off of. Um, Not even a physical obstacle, not even an illusory physical obstacle that like Beleg can walk through and the other March Wardens, but, you know, nobody else can. Um, It should not look like a wall of, you know, thorns or a big giant hedge or whatever, right? Um, It shouldn't look like anything. It should just look like a wall of trees you just can't make yourself walk through. Um, And the experience of that has to be extremely unsettling, right? Um, uh, Yeah, yeah. Um, I know I'm mixing my... My my Disney connections, <laughs> Nick. But still, <laughs> it's fine. There's Snow White, Sleeping Beauty. It's all the same, <laughs> right? more or less. Anyway, um, okay. Um, besides which, I think I've gone most of my life getting elements of those films mixed up. Both of those, Snow White and Sleeping Beauty are Disney films that I don't think I've seen in 35 years or more. Uh, and uh, and I've, I've, I've pretty much gotten them mixed up my whole life, I think. But anyway. Um, uh, Steven's uh, cover says, would it uh, be a sudden thing as soon as someone crosses some point or a feeling that grows the further someone goes? I think, um, I think the latter, Stephen. I, I wouldn't think it would be. I don't think the boundary would be necessarily really sharp. Because again, a really sharp boundary suggests a physical boundary, like like there is some kind of force, or rather, it would physicalize the magic of Melian in a way that I wouldn't want to invite people to do. Right. Um, the last thing we would want was somebody like bringing their toes right up to the edge, right? Or, like, hopping across and hopping back, right? We, we can't have the boundary be definite enough for people to uh, do anything like that. Um, so, yes, I would think it would be a feeling that would increase, that would start, you know, at the edge of the forest and would increase, and nobody gets further than a little bit. But here's the other thing. The other thing that having the girdle operating like that would enable us is it, it enables a more... Um, dramatic progress for Baron, right? Um, him having his momentous accomplishment be taking one step, essentially, right? Even if it's one step that no one else had ever taken before. There's only so much on screen you can do with somebody being like, and I am 
taking a step. Okay, whew, I'm better now, right? Um, whereas if it's something that is increasing, you know, yard by yard as he enters slowly, enters the forest, um, we can we can kind of increase um, we can increase the tension, increase the drama, increase his suffering until Luthien's song he encounters, right? Um, so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, <laughs> Stephen Cover saying at this rate, I'm going to be able to claim Disney Plus for research purposes. <laughs> it's so true. Um, yeah. So Stephen H, I think people going good. Again, it's about millions will, right? I mean, this is a barrier of millions will. So, um, she, her, the like Beleg and Turin don't need like a charm, you know, that makes them immune to the effects of the girdle or something, because her will is not set against them. They have her blessing to come and to go. Um, you know, Stephen, it even makes me think: what if there were some kind of uh, specific blessing that? Um, she bestows upon them, you know, um, some kind of, I mean, I'm thinking here of the Lembus scene with Beleg, right? When she gives Beleg Lembus and she, um, and then Thingol lets him choose the sword and stuff. Um, uh, that's obviously different because he's like moving out right at that point. Um, Beleg is, but, uh, but still like same kind of principle, right? The, you know, this, there to be some kind of, you know, the, but, but again, I, I wouldn't want it to be even a even an immaterial charm like she's got to come and kiss you on the forehead or you know put her hand on you or uh, or something or f- you know flick water on you or whatever however however it is she does it um, for there to be a kind of a ritual um, thing going on there. Um, I, I don't I don't like the ritual thing because it, it again it makes it it physicalizes it it makes it seem like it's out of her power. What we want to show is, again, that it's an expression of her will. And so, of course, Beleg and Mablung and the other March Wardens aren't kept out by it. Nor are the friends and allies of Doriath, right? You know, the sons of Thanarfin can come and go. Um, What this means, of course, is that if the Girdle of Melian is going to work against now, we don't have any evidence of what would happen if, say, Kurafin tried to get into Doriath, right? Um, do we think the girdle would keep Kurafin out? Is it the girdle that would keep him out, or is it only Thingol's ban that would keep him out? Um, could he get in? He'd just get in trouble if he did. Or would the girdle keep him out? Because... Um, uh, yeah, Nick, I agree. Melian doesn't have to go to the border, the border to let dwarvish teamsters through. Exactly. There's, but what this does sort of suggest, though, right, is that once the girdle is established, Melian's will essentially has to ratify Thingol's decrees, right? You know, so she has to buy in <laughs> to his that is like so when when he establishes trade agreements with the dwarves and allows the dwarves to come and go 
they're able to come and go, but it's her. It's not his will. It's her will that has to let them in because it's her girdle. It's not his girdle, right? So um, she has to, her will has to be in harmony with his, and she would agree to that, right? She would, she would do that. But it is definitely uh, an interesting... It's not automatic, right? Okay, he, he's not holding the remote on the girdle, right? He can't program it himself. It's her will. And so she has to choose to endorse her husband's immigration policies, <laughs> right? Uh, in order for the girdle to be in force. Um, I th- that seems to me a, um, um, a logical, um, that seems to me a logical extension of the thing. Um, yeah. Marie, excellent point. Maria's remembering that, uh, as Marie always remembers, uh, that Kelegorm sends messengers to Doriath after kidnapping Luthien. Yes, he does. Um, now, there I would say... Um, seems like seems like Melian would probably want to hear what those guys have to say. Well, exactly. I think I would think that what would happen there is they would meet up with the March Wardens and they would say, we've got messengers, for and then they would escort them in. So, you know, Melian's will not only automatically accepts the March Wardens themselves, but is going to, like, her will is going to be invested. Like, th- there's got to be even some level of delegation. Like, if they choose to bring somebody in, she doesn't have to okay it. They don't have to send a message to her to be like, hey, could you tweak the girdle, please? We've got somebody we need to bring in. And she's like, okay, yeah, no problem. I'll, you know, I'll, I'll change the settings. Like, that doesn't have to happen, right? They can bring them in. So, um, um, yeah, Cecilia, I do think, therefore, what this is, and this is, Cecilia, one of the things that I like, right? It does create the situation where even when she does not like or even actively opposes her husband's decrees, um, she goes along with it. I mean, she chooses to go along uh, and do that. And I think that that's that's interesting. Um, But, um, yeah, yeah. Stephen Cover, uh, 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 Dave is saying we, we need to try to reconstruct the conditional statements governing the Girdle's AI. Uh, yes. Yeah. Basically, that's clearly that's clearly the issue. Um, Obviously, a neural network. Yeah. Yeah. Clearly. So, um, but yes, but Cecilia, that's exactly the dynamic there, right? Um, there has to be the moment when she. Um, she has to. She has to buy in. She has. To, she has to go along, even when she doesn't necessarily agree. Um, yeah. Nick says the girdle is kind of like uh, Mjolnir, Thor's hammer, in a way, uh, able to determine on its own who is worthy. Um, yeah. Yeah. In a sense. Um, uh, but again, it's. It's it's connected with her will, but as I said, it has to be sort of passive to some degree. Um, but that is a that's kind of a nice like I think that gives you an intuition about how it should be portrayed on on screen, right? Like it e- either you can pick up the hammer or you can't. Right. Uh, right. You know there isn't as you say there's no incantation. Yep. There isn't a, a quest 
to retrieve a mystical key. Right. You don't need guess, to be I, wearing I, I, a particular amulet or something in order to pass yeah. through safely. Yeah. 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 Same thing with the sword and the stone. It just either you can do it, either you can pass or not, either you can pull the sword or not. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, in some sense she would set the conditions for that, uh, of course, because again, it's, 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 it's an expression of her will. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I I love this discussion because I feel like I feel like the um, I feel like the naive portrayal of this would be to portray it as like you know like the more more of the like you know kind of the mystical barrier with the magic key or something where we're like yeah like you say every everybody who's allowed in and out would have a garage opener that opens <laughs> right um, right. Right, exactly, and um, and the, the there is another and, the, and yeah and Baron like the portrayal in that setting the portrayal of Baron getting in would be would would somehow portray him as breaking and entering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He like figures out how to how to how to uh, how to hot wire the garage <laughs> garage door to get in. <laughs> whereas whereas I think in the way we're setting it up. He he will he will just be a character that we just we just see him come in like he he doesn't there's no like you say there's not going to be like this thing where he like tries to overcome he's like having trouble walking or something he just he'll go in because that will be her will that he enter. Yeah, I mean that's interesting, right? Because part of the drama there um, is Thingle is going to treat Baron like a trespasser, right? He broke the law. He. Uh, he's not welcome here. He's, you know, he's like somebody who climbed over the wall. He's like somebody who hacked in through the garage door, right? As you say. Um, whereas Melian is not going to look at it that way. Melian is going to be like, no, he's supposed to be here, <laughs> right? He's not, he's not, he's not a burglar. Uh, he's a guest. Um, he's, uh, uh, in fact, he's an awaited guest, in, in fact, I mean, so she and he are going to have very different views of Baron uh, from the very beginning. Um, uh, yeah. So, Stephen, I think definitely his getting through the girdle will be a point in his favor for her, for Melian. I, I think Thingol and Melian will view that entirely differently. Thingol will see it as an outrage, even as almost something like a desecration, even right, like an act of. Well, not vandalism, but 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 um, he's violating something sacred almost. Right? How dare he do that? Um, it's an abomination what he's done, crossing the girdle as no one else has ever done. Um, and you can hear, notice you you can hear the tone that kind of abomination, desecration tone in Thingol's words to him, right? Um, Ye of uncouth race, right? Uh, you know that's that's that that's a thingolism, right? Um, and he he sees Baron as unworthy. It's not right for him to do this. Um, not only just because of, it's his daughter, but um, uh, but 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 again, Melian Melian is going to see it completely differently, um, completely differently. Um, yeah, no, Nick, I'm not saying that Melian allows him in. I'm just saying she's going to see it differently. Yeah, he like, what, short-circuited the system or something, right? Like he got, Thingol is going to see his getting in, Baron's getting in as an abs, like a, a proof of his culpability, 
right? A proof of his unworthiness, essentially, that he would dare to, that he would transgress in this way, uh, trespass and transgress. Um, she is going to see it very differently, right? She is going to be like, no, actually, he's just kind of the chosen one, right? Um, less burglar, more messiah. Uh, yeah, that's what you should be thinking here, dear. Um, yes. Um, uh, yeah. Um, Cecilia, I think that's interesting. Um, uh, Cecilia's wondering even if it's, you know, Fingal could feel almost betrayed, even by Melian, that like she let him in. Like, how, how could this happen? How could she let this happen? And she's like, honey. Anyway. We're not going to go all the way down. I'm trying to resist going too far down the season six road. Uh, but it's important because we need to, we need to figure it's going to be relevant in season five. We've got to figure out how the, uh, how the girdle works. And we can't talk about this in the absence, right. Of, um, uh, we, you know, we, it's, we can't just pretend Baron and Luthien didn't happen. And so, um, yeah, yeah. Um, Okay. All right, but I'm gonna I'm gonna try to resist going any further with that. So all right, so I think we have a reasonably good grasp on the overall trajectory with Fingal. It's gonna end with him being still not really convinced, right? Beleg is the one who has the you know his sort of initial distant. He's he's gonna be cautious because Thingol's cautious and he 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 is Thingol's guy, right? So he's gonna be cautious with Haleth. He's he's gonna go from wary to incredulous, right? Just like amazed at them uh, to, you know, admiring and, and supportive at the end. Um, and Thingol is still going to take a lot of convincing. Like he's still not going to want them there at all. Um, yeah. Good. Agreed. Nick, we're halfway done with the first slide. Do you have a problem with that? This is important. This is important. Um, okay. Besides, if the project is going to last for 20 years, what's the difference between 25, 20 and 25 years after all? Um, okay. So, um, Kyrdin. We mentioned Kyrdin last time. Um, I, I talked about the sort of the bigger issue with Kyrdin, uh, and that is... Um, and this was raised, and I'm sorry, I'm forgetting who was raising this uh, on the discussion boards. Um, but it is very true that the like the number one issue uh, with with I think it was Hakan maybe who was talking about this big issue with Kierden is like what, what's 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 Kierden's role right now? Not just in the plot lines of this story, but like what's poor Kierden doing with his life these days? Like. Who's he building ships for? Like, what's the point of shipbuilding anymore? The door's shut now, right? I mean, you know, that, that not only is the other half of his Elvish ferry service that he and Elway, or, or sorry, he and Elway dreamed up before, uh, not only is that gone, right? But um, now the Valar have closed the way, and it it can't happen, right? Um, so, wh- wh- what is what is Kierden doing? What does he think he's doing? 
Is he having an identity crisis? Does he have... Does he hold on to his Estelle despite the circumstances? Do we have Kierden? I kind of like that, by the way. My vote would be that Kierden would be sort of stubbornly holding out for the fulfillment of his vision, even when there seems no reason whatsoever to um, do it, right? It looks like it's done forever, and the whole thing just flat didn't pan out, right? Uh, but... Um, but exactly, Lincoln says, tell me, Mr. Kierden, where do you see yourself in the next 500 years? Exactly, right? Like, what, what's his, he's, if, okay, so he's still got his long-term goals, right? His long-term career goals are still in place. He's holding on to hope. Um, he's going to continue preparing. He's going to continue preparing even though there doesn't seem to be anything to prepare for, Right? But he is going to still hold... So, you know, this could come up. I don't know if we want it to come up and if it should be this season or another season or whatever. We've got plenty of seasons uh, for Kierden before his life is going to change significantly. Um, but it could be relevant, as we'll get back to in a, in a, in a couple minutes. Um, he's not just ruling a seaside people. Right, his job is not. It's not just that he rules a small nation of elves, which happens to be on the coast. Right, that is not Kierden's thing. Kierden's thing is building havens on the coast with the design that elves can leave. Now, he see on so because the, there there there've got to be two factors here. Right, on the one hand the way to Valinor is shut, and that seems like a pretty insoluble problem at this point. But on the other hand, the need to for elves, potentially, to be able to have the opportunity to flee and depart is greater than ever before, right? I mean, he's got to foresee that things could go really bad in Beleriand. Um, so I don't... So I think that this is why he holds on stubbornly to his vision. He can say, I don't know how it can happen. I don't know um, what needs to change before it could happen, but I, but I still feel the same calling upon me and that my job is to make a haven on the western shores and to make ships so that the elves can depart. Where can they depart to? How can they get there? I don't know. But nothing is going to stop me from making havens on the coast and making ships uh, in order to enable the elves to escape. And we'll see him... Um, <laughs> Michael says, I just don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, and so, Philip, uh, you're right that Kierden is going to... Uh, you know, he's going to have uh, in Turgon an ally. We saw him and, Tur- and Turgon's relationship. We, you know, been, we've been working with that uh, for a couple seasons now. Uh, so, well, last season anyway. Um, uh, so we can have Turgon, you know, sending messages and, and uh, sending out mariners. I don't think that's yet, but it will come, right? It will come. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that's going to be one sort of element of that. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, no, Cecilia, I mean, it's true that the Noldor are the only ones that have been banished from Valinor, but no, it's just, it's, they're just obstacles in the sea. No ships can get through now. Um, so even though, 
you know, the Sindar, in theory, have not been banned from Valinor. Um, the, 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 the way is not passable at this point. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Lincoln, that's really interesting. Lincoln says, uh, if we depict another elf who's undergoing a crisis of faith, um, we have Kierden available as a juxtaposition, right? Kierden's continued Estelle. Lincoln, I think that's brilliant. I think that's exactly when we should... Re- I don't know when, like, we need a scene, right? Or like an episode that involves Kierden uh, and which plays this out, right? Plays out this issue of Kierden's continuing Estelle even in the face of what appears to be pretty clear evidence that his services are no longer required, right? Um, so, yes, I think we do need to save it until we have someone appropriate uh, who is going to be um, uh, having doubts. Um, well, Stephen, one person who uh, suggests himself to me would be Fingolfin. Um, we could do it the other way around, Right, Fingolfin could be. Fingolfin could start off. That's and, and hang on, I'm, and I'm just saying if right if we I, we don't even have to do this Kierden plot um, in this season necessarily. We don't have to horseshoe it or not horseshoe shoehorn. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> we don't have to horseshoe it either. Uh, but <laughs> we don't have to do anything related to shoes connected to Kierden in this season. But um, we... I'm just thinking if we did want to uh, bring it in, I'm imagining Fingolfin at the beginning. Fingolfin having some uncertainties about the siege, right? And then he... You know, and then he's like... It's, you know, maybe after he is inspired by Kierden's hope and then he gets his vision, and then he kind of turns things around. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Stephen, I can see a little bit of, uh, I can see a little bit of parallel between Kierden and, like, 98-year-old Abraham. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that works for me. Um, and the beard, right? So it's all, it's all good. That's probably, um, Maybe that's what Kierden stops shaving, right? When uh, the ways to Valinor uh, um, go down. That would all make sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, how soon does Turgon begin trying to send messages to Valinor? I'm thinking after the Dagor Bragalach. After the Bragalach and before the Near Nith is what I'm thinking. Um, I am thinking that Turgon's... I'm trying to remember. I, I'm not remembering exactly when in the text it mentions it first. Somebody tell me if you remember. After the Dagor... It starts after the Near Nith in the book, Stephen says. Okay. Okay. I could see that too. It'll depend on how we want to play it and how we want to connect it to other things. I could imagine, Stephen, us choosing to make it one of those reaction to the Baron and Luthien situation, right? There are several ways in which there are some positive responses to the Baron and Luthien 
situation, and I could imagine Turgan um, doing that in that context. Or we could wait till after the near knife. But in any case, it's not in this season yet, so Kyrdan does not have that to occupy him. He still does not have the commissions from Gondolin uh, to... Uh, uh, to, but again, I, but I think that's good. I think we want to establish Kierden's faith, Kierden's Estelle, his hope. Um, prior to, I don't, I don't, I don't think we want that to be Targan's initiative, right? We don't want that to be, you know, uh, like we, we don't want the messages, the messengers from Gondolin who go down to try to, find, you know, Targan says, go find Kierden, the shipwright, and. Um, and ask him to, uh, you know, to 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 make a ships, and and they go in that, and then they find Kierden, uh, you know, like uh, uh, all scruffy in a bar, uh, right, having crawled inside a bottle because he's got nothing better to do with his life now, uh, and uh, and they're like, hey, come on, Kierden, you can still design ships, like it's time to, you know, get back into action, and he's like, I'm back in the game, right? That's not that's how I want it not to go, right? <laughs> I want Kierden to be established. Um, uh, prior, prior, prior to that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Okay. Um, so, okay. All right. Oh, good. Okay. So Rhiannon says that it, it, he sends the first batch after the Bragalak, but, um, anyway. Okay. Yeah. So whatever. <laughs> so, maybe we establish it in this season. Maybe we don't, but the best opportunity we have of, uh, in, of getting to Kyrdan in this season is by our discussion of Gilgalad. Because let's do another slide because we can. Um, all right. So, Gilgalad, you will recall, um, we made an executive decision in season four. Um, just at, as a reminder for those of you who are unfamiliar, um, there is controversy concerning Gilgalad. That is to say, Tolkien. There are a couple different genealogies that Tolkien gave for him in the published Silmarillion. To, uh, uh, Christopher went with the Gilgalad as the son of Fingon uh, root, right? So as to make him sort of the linear heir um, of uh, the king. But there's another version in which he was the son of Oradreth. We went with the Oradrethian uh, 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 version of the story. So we have decided that Gilgalad is going to be the son of Oradreth and Meryl. Meryl, of course, his Cinda wife, whose uh, uh, heavy flirtation was happening at the Merith Arathad. Um, um, or were they married there? No, there were. There was a wedding. That's that's a. That's a I guess a wedding is a very heavy flirtation, isn't it? Um, really, really, really the heaviest sort. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Meryl and Oradreth got married, and it was all very happy. Uh, and Finduilus is so Finduilus, uh, Turgens, or sorry, not Turgens, uh, Turin's wannabe girlfriend uh, is their their daughter. And the older sister. Uh oh. Hang on. Great. My internet connection is playing funky things. That's always fun. Um, all right. Anyway, sorry. Hope you guys can hear me okay. Um, uh, so, um, anyway, so, so, uh, Finduilus is the older sister of Gilgalad. So we had Finduilus born near the end of season four. We, it's time for Gilgalad to get born. Now, the question is, what do we do 
with Gilgalad, and in particular, the biggest question about Gilgalad is why? Why does how do things end? Why do things end up going down the way that they go down? We know that Gilgalad is going to end up with Círdan down at the Bay of Balar, right? That's the end state. The end state is going to be Oradreth and Finduilas are going to end up in Nargothrond, of course, right? But Gilgalad is going to end up down at the Bay of Balar with Círdan. Now, why? Yeah, Michael says, but they don't have kids in time of war. This is a big blow to Andreth. Yeah, uh, uh, poor Ignor has to do some fast talking when she's like, yeah, um, you know, say that to uh, Oradreth over there. Um, so, um, uh, okay. Yeah. So anyway, Michael, so as far as the kids in wartime thing, it's not wartime. It's time of peace. So why uh, is Ignor not willing to connect with, uh, uh, you know, to, to marry Andreth apart from the whole interracial marriage thing, d- separated by the Gulf of Fate and all that kind of thing? Um, uh, because he's on the front lines and thinks war is coming. Uh, they... Th- Oradreth and um, uh, Ignor may have very may well have very different views as to how soon the the uh, the things are going to heat up here a little bit. Um. So yeah, so he's he's got to be born before the Dagor Bragalak, or he isn't going to get born. Uh, obviously. Um. So. Okay. Yeah, exactly. As Nick says, we'll have shown border skirmishes by then and stuff. So the the threat of war is heating up, and so Ignor will feel under some sort of different constraints uh, than Oradreth does uh, earlier on. And yes, Rihanna and I agree. Gilgalad should get born very early in the season, especially if we want him to be having any say in the matter. That is, we could have him bundled up in a you know swaddled stuffed in a basket and sent down to cured in that way right if we wanted to but i don't think we necessarily do want to we may in fact actually want to have gogoad making his own choices about things in which case we need to give him some time to grow up and as we know we've got some time passing this season so he can at least be um i mean we're going to get Myglin, you know up to at least awkward elvish adolescence before the end of the season, so there's no reason that Gilgalad can't also be an awkward elvish adolescent, and indeed a super fun uh, anti-parallel there, right? I mean, if we have the two elf lads growing up in this season, right? The two elf lads growing up in parallel, being Gilgalad uh, and um, Maeglin, that's kind of a fun thing, isn't it? Um, I mean, there's some parallels there, right? You've got the one Noldo spouse and the one, well, semi-Cinda spouse, anyway. Moriquendi, Caliquendi marriages, right? At the very least. Um, And uh, both of them, uh, you know, going on to have uh, uh, significant destinies, right? Um, So, yeah, I think that's kind of, that's kind of fun. Um, uh, So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, okay. But why? 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 
is Gilgalad sent down. Now, I can totally believe the whole, um, uh, you know, Nick was suggesting, Oradreth thinks this is all going to end in tears and ships Gilgalad off to the safest place he he can imagine. Yeah. What, does he not like Findalith as as much? (laughs) Right? I mean, is he getting all patriarchal here and being like, oh, my son, carry on the family line. I must protect my son, but the girl is expendable, so she can stay. Um, Uh... And Marie says, isn't Nargothron safe? You'd think. Right, right, exactly. Um, uh, so I kind of have a problem. Um, I kind of have a problem with the idea of safety. Just because, again, like, why, why is he splitting up the family? Right, why is he splitting up the family? Why is he, um, why do you send one of your two kids to safety? Like, it doesn't make sense. Um, or, I mean, I, I guess you could find a way to do it, but it just, it seems a strain. It seems to put an unnecessary strain um, on uh, on that decision, right? Um, and so that's kind of why I would like to leave open the possibility of getting, uh, giving Gilgo at himself some agency in this decision. Because if he chooses it, then that's okay, right? If it's not dad's decision, um, a, you know, or dad and mom's or whatever, um, uh, hmm, um, that's a really interesting idea, Nick. Oh, okay. well, Stephen's suggestion first is, um, uh, Stephen's suggestion is that Gilgalad is a problem child who needs to be sent to boarding school to straighten him out. <laughs> right? So in that sense, Stephen, there's, we're establishing a parallel uh, between um, uh, you know, Kierden's <laughs> havens on the coast, you know, and St. Brutus's secure center for incur- incurably criminal boys, uh, which I'm sure is what everyone imagines when they imagine Gilgalad's havens, or, or you know, or Kyrdin's havens on the coast. Um, so that, that's one option. <laughs> I'm not sure we want to go there. The second uh, is, um, uh, so, okay, Nick, all right, I'll float Nick's idea. Here's Nick's highly dramatic idea. What if he doesn't go to Kyrdin right away, right? What if Oradreth brings him uh, to... What if Oradreth brings him down uh, to Nargothrond with him, right? So so he's got both Finduilus and Gilgalad with him down there in Nargothrond. Um, what if Gilgalad is sent off during the time of... Kelegorm and Kurufin. So when Kelegorm and Kurufin usurp Nargothrond, um, uh, Nick is suggesting maybe Gilgalad is running his mouth, right? Um, so Oradreth puts him on a bus before Kelegorm stabs him. Um, uh, yeah, that he... Um, that he... Um, is a threat. Or, like, one... Oradreth, obviously... Oradreth is going to keep a low profile because he sticks around and is still there uh, when the people rise up and boot out Kelgorm and Kurafin, right? Um, and how we're going to play that is going to be really interesting. I mean, you realize this, right? You realize that the um, um, the story of Nargothrond is one of our big political dramas, right? Uh, and we get to we get to throw that 
during season six. Like it's going to be one of the uh, it's going to be one of the very significant um, subplots uh, here. Oh, oh, hang on a second. Sorry, I'm having an issue here. There we go. Where did my webcam go? Like totally lost my webcam. Oh, there it is. Okay. All right. Sorry. I apologize for the brief screen disruption there. Um, okay. Yeah, that's my other screen, Marie. Uh, that's the other. <laughs> that's what I get to get to go back to as soon as I'm done with. Uh, as soon as I'm done with this. Okay. Sorry. Um, yeah. Whew. I don't want to be reminded of that just now. Okay. So anyway, the point is. There's conflict between Gilgalad and Kelgorm and Kurufin, and Oradreth is afraid that they're going to kill him, right? That Kurufin is just going to off Gilgalad. He's going to have him murdered or something else. Uh, and um, uh, he's... And so he ships him off down to Kyrdin then. That's an interesting um, possibility. That's an interesting possibility. Um, I agree that that is a um, season six question. But of course, if we're, I mean, we have to commit to it now, right? If we're going to do it, we don't have to like do the whole political uh, story, obviously now, but we do have to decide whether Gilgalad is going to go then. Is he going to go now or is he going to go later? Um, I mean, because the other alternative, the other alternative is to, you're right, Marie, maybe it's uh, Kilabrimbor who suggests uh, that Gilgalad leave. I like that. I like that actually. If Kelebr- because Celebrimbor and Oradreth have already become buds, right? Um, we already had the little the bromance episode between Oradreth and and uh, and Celebrimbor, so I like that. Um, having or to have Celebrimbor somehow foil his father's attempts to murder Gilgalad. Okay, Nick, I'm kind of liking this story more and more. I was resisting at first, but I'm kind of thinking there's a lot of angles here. Um, because the other alternative, the only other the only other good alternative I can see is for Gilgalad to have some positive reason, like some positive calling, some just a, a desire, a strong desire for some reason to join Kyrdin, but we'd need a reason for that, and it would have to make sense for Gilgalad. Um, and I don't know that it does make sense for Gilgalad. I mean, how does... What? Like, I'm really interested in boats? Or like, I... You know, oh, Kier, you know, Kierden is all about, like, hanging out down by the sea and, um, you know, uh, helping folks to get to the shore. I also love the idea of helping people. I mean, I, I don't see him being in line with that, right? We've got to think about Gilgalad's ultimate, like, we're setting the stage. Gilgalad's going to have one of the longest-running stories of any of these elves that were... He's going to outlive all these all these folks, right? And although Gilgalad gets very little narrative play in Tolkien's works, his story is a long and very significant one. So in our world, right, in the world in which we're going to do much more with the story of the Second Age uh, than Tolkien told, especially as far as what was going on not in Numenor, um, I... Gilgalad is going to be a very major figure for a very long time. So um, we have all that stuff to um, uh, to 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 set up. Um, no, Maria, I don't mean that Kurafin is going to like stab him himself. No, no, no. I'm not saying that he's going to uh, 
No, no, no. No, I'm just saying that Kurofin is going to do something. Um, is conspiring harmfully against Gogolad in one way or another. Um, yeah. Um, see, Lincoln, that's why I don't want... I think if Gilgalad feels the call of the sea here, how do we reconcile that? I mean, we could just make it a long unfolding tragedy that he never gets to go, right? But I, I don't like that. I mean, he's chosen, right? He chooses to remain. He is, um, you know, he is the last high king of the Noldor, and he's going to know it. That is, he's not going—he's going to know that he's king. Surprise, surprise! No, he's going to know he's the last king. There will be no other king of the Noldor after him. He, he knows this. He's going to know this for most of his reign, right? And it's going to lead up to, of course, the, the War of the Last Alliance. That final decision is going to be the thing that um, that prompts him, right? The thing that leads him uh, to, um, uh, you know, th- he, he is going to perceive the moment, right? Um, so, therefore, uh, Florian was suggesting on the discussion boards that we should have Gogolad interacting with men, in some way in this season, uh, in order to begin the long setup of the last alliance. Um, maybe. Maybe. So, one possibility that was also voiced here uh, on the slide, uh, Gogolad could be the young elf who grows up more slowly than the men of Beor this season. Uh, in other words, he could be visiting Nargothrond already. Um, and so that kind of contrast between the development of the humans and the development of the elves, um, you know, that could be a, uh, a um, uh, that could be he could have a role in that story. Possibly. I don't know that I like that, though. What don't I like about that? I think what I don't like about that is that it makes him incidental. Like, he's not a doer. He's not a chooser. It's not about him. It's He's just like, I just happen to be growing up in the backdrop, right? Um, uh, and also, it creates a... It establishes him from the beginning, like he's the contrast with humans, right? Um... It's not, it's, it's not, I, I don't dislike the idea, but I don't love it. It feels not, Gilgalad is momentous. Like, he's got to be momentous. It feels like a non-momentous thing, right? Um, if in his youth he just happens to be contrasted with men, <laughs> look like a slow developer in contrast. Um, yeah, and I agree that he's not important yet, Stephen H. You're right. You're right. Um, He's not important yet. Um, but he's important to us. I mean, everybody who is... Um, and the other thing that I would say, I mean, in our theoretical world of theoretical viewers, um, anyone who is named in the Lord of the Rings is going to be important, right? Is going to be... be any time they encounter anybody who uh, whose name occurs in the Lord of the Rings, it's going to be a big deal. Right, uh, and so Gilgalad is going to be a big deal, whether we kind of, whether we think he is or not, whether we want him to be or not. Um, uh, yeah, 
Okay, Nick. I think I'm willing. The whole Kellebrimbor angle is the one that really sealed it for me. We can work out the details later. But Gilgalad is like refugee from Nargathron before that became cool uh, works for me, right? It works for me. Um, also, it gives him an interesting role. I mean, the refugees from Nargathrond who do end up down on the coast with Círdan, and there's Gilgalad, and they're gonna accept Gilgalad as their leader, right? I mean, he's like their king, sort of, right? They're like surely they 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 would accept Gilgalad as their lord, probably. But of course, everybody's going to be following Arendel when Arendel comes down. So I'm thinking, as far as the setup for the Last Alliance goes, I think we wait. I think that comes with with Arendel and Gilgalad, because there we're going to have that situation, right? We're going to have Gilgalad and the refugees of Nargothrond are already there, and then we're going to have uh, we're going to have Tuor, Idril, Arendel, and the refugees from Gondolin. Uh, coming down and joining together, and then we've got a an alliance situation, right? That's going to happen there. And I know Arendel's only a kid at that point, um, and yet Arendel is going to be the when he grows up, right? He is the one who is going to be universally accepted, and therefore presumably by Gilgalad as well um, uh, as the ruler. And that's interesting, right? Um, how does that play out uh, with, you know, the uh, with Gilgalad in place there? Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, okay. So that's where I think we, we do this. We, 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 where we will situate the setup for the last alliance will be there. Uh, in the uh, in the refuges down at Balar, uh, after the fact, but yeah, Nick, that that storyline is strengthened significantly by first establishing him in Nargothrond and even in a kind of leadership role. The other people of Nargothrond will remember him, right? Like as the uppity kid who got in trouble with Kelgorm and Kurafin, whom they kicked out, right? So, um, yeah. Kelegorm and Kurafin, who will be attacking later on. No, there's too much to love about this. Nick, I'm totally won over. I am completely convinced Gilgalad goes to Nargothrond with his dad, but leaves it first. Love it. I've gone from being slightly resistant to loving it wholeheartedly. Completely convinced by this now. That's excellent. Okay. I'm going to peek at the next slide, not because we have time to do another slide, because we don't, but I just wanted to see what's... Rem- oh, 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 ah, mm, the, uh, the catch and release program. Yes, yes. Okay. All right. Let's save that one. Um... Okay, next time.
we're going to talk about the bad guys. And in conjunction with the bad guys, we're going to talk about Rogrin and Anil. We have our two major... We covered two... We had four elf capture scenarios that we had in mind, right? We had the one who gets captured and never escapes, right? And uh, that we, uh, you know, established Celebrimbor's mom. Um, Then we had um, uh, the elf who is captured and who goes back and betrays the good guys. Right, and that was Evelos, right? Who under the spell of Bottomless Dread? We did those two last season. The other two scenarios were the one who escapes legitimately under his own power, and that's going to be Rogren, and then the one who uh, escapes, but still like feeds information back again, sort of spell of Bottomless Dread. More of that going on, but not playing exactly the same role uh, as Evelos did, um, and that's going to be Anile, and this. We, we, so we suggested him, if you don't recognize who Anil is, he is the Cinda who is the sort of, not foster father, but like the friend of, of Tuor. When Tuor escapes from the Easterlings, um, he, uh, he stays with a gray elf up there in Dorloman, and that's going to be Anil. So we're imagining Anil is living in a kind of self-imposed exile at the end of this. And you may remember that we set up Anil last season... He was the one who was leading his family in a carefree picnic out on the plains, uh, and, uh, you know, the uh, the Noldor were like, dude, it's not safe here. You really shouldn't be having a picnic inside of Angband. Um, and so there was some foreshadowing that that might perhaps not entirely end well. Exactly, Nick. We've got the, the collaborator. Uh, the broken one, the mole, and the vengeant escapee, right? So we we, we still need the mole and the vengeant escapee, uh, and that's going to be uh, Anil and Rogren respectively. There, um, okay. So we need to we need to work out there. We need to think through their stories, how we want this to go down. Um, uh, Rogren, of course, is one of Finrod's or uh, Fingen's people. Sorry, I meant uh, from up in the northeast or northwest. Oh, I'm just not doing well here, um, and. Um, uh, so we might maybe Hador, we haven't really worked out Hador's story. What does he do? How does he exactly gain his reputation among, you know, Fingen and the rest of his people? How, you know, how does he win the respect that he wins? Maybe this plot line has something to do with that. Um, and, uh, how does this thing work with Anil? Um, so, uh, of course, Rogren is going to famously die in the fall of Gondolin, but of course he is going to end up with Turgon at the near Nithornoidiad. He's going to be, uh, he, he will end up with Turgon's people when they flee back to Gondolin at the end of the near knife. That's how Rogren's going to end up uh, in Gondolin and then uh, dying spectacularly in the fall of Gondolin. Now, um, we need to think about this in the context of the bad guys. Right. I want to think about this in the context of what it means to the elves, but I feel like the more important context that we need to understand, really both of them, um, uh, but we, we certainly need to understand this in the context of what is going on with the bad guys uh, this season. Um, so we're going to need to be thinking and talking about the villains, uh, Sauron and his soon-to-be-rapidly-dwindling posse, um, uh, Gothmog and Glaurung, Bulldog, uh, the uh, the orc, uh, the sort of orc general champion, um, demigod dude, 
um, and of course, uh, Morgoth and Sauron. So, anyway, all these things we need to be thinking about. Uh, we'll, so we'll, we'll 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 do this next time. We'll talk about the the plots and issues of the bad guys uh, for next time, and we'll definitely be thinking about the catch and release elves in that context. All right. Very good. Next time we'll be, I think we should be able to stay on schedule here. So we'll be looking at the 24th of September, uh, a couple days after Bilbo and Frodo's birthday. Um, so uh, I, look, I look forward to that, as always. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. Thank you, Dave. Uh, and, as uh, always. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, this is... Always fun. We we covered a lot of ground tonight. Not so many slides, but a lot of ground. There's a lot of important stuff there with Thingol and Kirden and uh, Gilgalad. Big things. All right. Awesome. Uh, thanks very much, everybody. And I will uh, see you guys next time. I will say thanks for listening and Godspeed.